1: It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. The
2: history of monsters is the history of man. For without man to vilify, fear, and even worship these creatures, they couldn't be monsters. For surely it is we who are the measuring stick by whom monstrosity is measured. But what does it mean when we declare something's a monster? Scott Poole's new book is all about that question, Framed in the context of the history of America. Monsters in America, next on Monster Talk.
0: It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before.
2: A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a
0: 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch
3: Ness Monster.
2: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Today, we've got Karen Stolzno, Ben Radford, and myself, Blake Smith, discussing the history of monsters in America. But first, let me congratulate the winners of our Monster Talk 2012 t shirt contest. Our first place winner is Rick Stromoski, second place goes to Chris Barella, and third place goes to Sean Steele. Thanks so much to everyone who submitted an entry. Selecting from the fantastic entries was one of the toughest things we've had to do on this show. We'll be getting shirts ready and set up a place for you to get them very soon. For now, I'd like to try a little experiment this week, if you don't mind. You don't have to participate, but I'm really trying to see what the power of iTunes reviews is for listenership. If you're not driving or doing something which would make taking part in this experiment unsafe... Would you mind pausing the show for just a few moments and going to iTunes and giving us a review? It should only take a moment, and what I'd like to see is what happens if we get a thousand people to suddenly review the show. I think it would be really meaningful. Would you help me find out? Okay, so let's do that now. Are you back? Did you actually give us a review? I'll go read them later. It's time to get going with some... Monster talk talking with Dr. Scott Poole, an associate professor of history at the College of Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, we're talking to you today about your new book, Monsters in America. So you're a professor
3: of history. uh, Right. But your book's on monsters. Right. How'd that happen? Yeah, uh, I think that there's a lot of American historians that have the same kind of reaction. Um, As far as I know, this is really the first book in American history that deals with the idea of, of the monster now I will say that in other kinds of historiography in um, early modern history and in medieval history uh, this has actually been a pretty big area of focus it's actually kind of a growth industry in, in early modern history but um, but American historians have have not explored uh, uh, this this area and and sometimes sometimes tend to see it as um, you know, not so, you know, less history, more cultural studies, uh, more sort of studies of pop culture, mass culture, that kind of thing. Um, I'm definitely interested in that stuff, but um, I think that sort of the story of the monster as part of, of historical narratives is more complicated than that.
0: So, Scott, your book tackles a wide range of monsters, and I was wondering, what's your definition of monster?
3: Well, you know, I actually refuse to give a definition of the monster in the book. I know. <laughs> um, sort of at the very beginning, uh, I I essentially say that to give the monster meaning, sort of prevents a uh, specific meaning, prevents us from thinking about how different historical moments have given us different kinds of historical monsters. Um, I think that uh, part of that comes from my interests to sort of my own scholarly activity as a historian. I mean, historians really tend to not like abstract definitions, um, things that can be true, whether you're talking about the 18th century, the 19th century, or or the day before yesterday. Uh, And so I prefer, um, just as part of my methodology, to really think about, okay, um, what does the monster mean in this particular era? What is being defined as monstrous? And there, there really is, you know, the two parts to that. <clears throat> There's sort of, okay, what's the monster du jour? You know, what's the monster of the moment? But then, what does that mean in that era when someone describes something as a monster? Um, and I think that it's, uh, I think as you, you know, you look through the book, you, you see how that really changes, uh, as, as American society changes over about 300 years.
0: Yeah, I'd agree. There are lots of different meanings and different ways that the, the word's used.
3: In that, you, well, yeah, yeah. I
2: was going to say, Go you, don't want, you don't want to confuse the monster du jour with the monster design which
3: is the monstard. The monstard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah, you know, I think, I, you know, I, I actually borrow this idea from um, another scholar, uh, scholar in literary studies, uh, Judith Haberstam, who says that, um, that monsters are meaning machines. Um, and I, I, so I guess if I have a, I guess if I have a baseline definition, if I'm really pressed on it, if you, if I have to have a definition, <laughs> then I think that's what I would say. Uh, they actually are productive of meaning at particular points in history. They also, you know, kind of, um, you know, pull in different kinds of meanings out of the historical context. So.
4: Well, let me follow up on that because that's, that's an interesting thing that I've always found about monsters is that, you know, monsters are very contextual in my experience. You know, that what, what one, what one person or one group thinks of a monster, another, another group or society may not think of as a monster at all. So, um, given, given that you're sort of approaching monsters from a contextual, uh you know, area in which you know, we're, we're all talking about the meanings and things, what role do you see monsters as playing in society and culture? I mean, what, what, what meaning do you, do you find in them?
3: Um, I, you know, I think that they display a diversity of meanings and, and I would actually use just a, a couple of different um, specific historical examples. If you look at um, the Puritan settlements in the 17th century, you know, we, we tend to think about the Puritans as being obsessed with witches and, and of course they were but they were fascinated with all sorts of monsters, including, um, including sea serpents. Um, and so I talk about in the book, for example, there's this alleged, um, sea serpent sighting in 1638, uh, in just off the coast of Massachusetts. And, uh, the, the Puritan, uh, layman, he's not a clergyman, he's like a merchant or something. He, he essentially says, you know, I've seen this terrible creature rising out of the sea, um, it, it must have been a manifestation of the old serpent from the Garden of Eden. It must have been Satan himself,
4: essentially. I see.
3: Now, in the same part of the world, <laughs> literally the same part of the world, in the early 19th century, um, I talk about a sea serpent sighting. Um, actually, a lot more people claiming that they saw this thing uh, off of Gloucester, uh, Gloucester Harbor. Fishermen actually get in boats and go out and, and chase it and try to catch it. And um, there's not a discussion about uh, demonology or matters diabolical. Um, they're, they're talking in sort of semi-pseudo-scientific terms about what they're seeing. And they're actually even kind of trying to pull it into a political discourse uh in the sense of using it as a political symbol for, for this or that. Didn't come across anybody, you know, these kind of, you know, ancestors of the uh the, or the brother the posterity of the Puritans saying, Hey, you know, we've we've seen the devil. Um, so um, even when describing monsters that seem remarkably similar in different periods, um, attitudes, um, really ideological attitudes about religion, politics often gender and sexuality as well, uh, inform what people think they're seeing and the meaning that they attribute to it.
1: Okay, I've I've got a
2: question, and I don't want it to sound like an attack because most of our questions are going to be about monsters. This one's about your book itself, though. And your mm-hmm. book seems to fall into, like, this gray area between historical narrative and sociological commentary. And, and most, okay. of my, most of my experience with history books is they don't opine so much, so at least not directly. But you talk extensively about things about, like, the impact of slavery on the psyche of America, <laughs> the role of monsters in pop right. culture. So how do right. you justify that the tone that you take, which seems to be like a tone of certitude about the meaning of these things, in matters that are pretty much subjective? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, I don't know that they're entirely subjective in the sense that um you know I'm I'm writing um often less about um you know I I'm certainly not sort of psycho- psychoanalyzing different eras in American culture. Um you know I'm trying to use uh, primary sources listening to kind of the sources themselves um uh, and and hear pe- what people are are saying about what these ideas, uh symbols, etc. uh mean to them. Um, You know, um, I think that historians do reach conclusions, and um, I think that that's a little bit different from, um, uh, you know, obviously kind of dogmatic assertion. You know, I mean, when you have primary sources uh, where, you know, you have newspaper accounts of of slave rebellions being described with the symbolism of, of Frankenstein's monster, then part of what you sort of have to do is is figure out what's what's going on with that what why is that kind of comparison being made um what kind of cultural work does that do for the, the the people who are making the comparison um how do we how do we understand their particular moment better um the cause of that
2: well so let me um, follow up on that because yeah. like
3: yeah please do obviously
2: the role of literature has always been one where people can present monsters or any kind of fictional context as a metaphor for real-world issues. But it seems like you're arguing that the monsters of American culture themselves are sort of like being produced in, I guess, a folkloric sense to sort of represent the same kind of thing uh, without without the uh,
3: narrative structure to go with it. Is that accurate? Well, you know... Oh, well, yeah, I think that's close. Um, you know, I, early on in the book, I say that I'm, you know, I make it really clear that I'm uncomfortable with the idea of, of the, the monster as a, a metaphor, um, the, the monster as a, as a reflection of anxieties, psychological states, that kind of thing. I, I really try to argue that, you know, narratives of horror are interstitially related, to uh the kinds of historical events that that I'm interested in. And um, th- this in a way is not a, a terribly unusual argument. You know, it's it's a little bit like talking about um, the role of of race in in American history. Uh I mean, um, race is not uh constituted um, by uh biology. There are biological uh there's there's biological connections but it's largely a, a social construction, and yet we, we talk about it, uh, we've always talked about it, as if it is something that's, that is real, um, that has informed um, the way that our social relationships have, have been arranged, that has had real-world effects in terms, of, in terms of law, Um so you know, um, I think that that's that's part of what um, p- part of it is. You know, I'm I'm kind of fighting against a monster literature. There is actually a pretty big monster literature out there, and a lot of it takes um, what I consider a um, a highly highly psychological interpretation of what the monster means. Um, lots and lots of books that essentially say monsters are anxieties, um, uh, reflect anxieties about uh, this and that. Um, you know, I, I, I think that they are historical narratives that are bound up in the way that American history has, has played itself out. So that's that's part of what I mean when I say earlier in the book that, you know, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna take my monsters seriously and even go so far as to say that, that I believe in monsters.
2: Okay. (laughs) I was gonna say, that's a fair, I think that's a fair framework and a fair framing position, I should say. Um, the, the reason I ask is because I want to give our listeners a context because most of the time when we talk, we're talking about uh, hard sciences and uh, hard right. history. And, and your book is a, a very different book than one we've ever talked about before. Yet the subject matter is completely the kind of thing that our listeners are going to enjoy. So that, that's all. And, and also I want to say that I, I think that uh, a lot of the, the commentary you made about the uh, racial subtext of Monsters in American Culture Are interesting because it reminded me of something I'd kind of forgotten about, which is the sort of inherent racism in creationism. Uh, the, the the Mm. very idea about the, the idea of there being individual races, which I think science is demonstrated is, is is a, is a social, uh, construct, not a scientific one.
3: Right. And actually that comes up in the book in a discussion of, of, of scopes, um, which, you know, I call the scopes monster trial, um, in, in the sense that there's a, there's a lot of dialogue about monstrosity going on um around that discussion i actually quoted in a, an atlanta newspaper editorial where um, you know a, a essentially say that it essentially says that you know if evolution is true then a we're descended from monsters b this totally undercuts white supremacy we're much more closely related to uh, <laughs> african americans than than we actually want to be um, so, all, you know, those issues of, of race and science, particularly in the late 19th, early 20th century, I, I think are kind of at the forefront of, of American monster culture and, and monster discussions.
0: Well, I think that a lot of our listeners would tend to think of monsters as being non-human cryptids of some kind, so mm-hmm. uh, as a salient form. So what are some of the other kinds of monsters as you see
3: them? Well, you know, I explore sort of the, the cryptid phenomenon, certainly, you know, and, and even sort of the whole, this, you know, this whole notion of, of undiscovered animals and, and where that comes from. You also, though, have to deal um, with, um, you know, m- monsters that are seen as, as having a, a supernatural, even a diabolical origin. And so that's actually why religion plays um, a pretty significant role in, in the book. Um, so, so many monsters, um, the, the vampire in particular, um, are, are seen as having some kind of um, you know some kind of demonic origin. I, I, I do think it's interesting, though, that um, um, a lot of the creatures that today might be thought of as cryptids, uh, giant fish, uh, wild uh, uh, wild men, undiscovered races, uh, sea serpents that I mentioned before. Uh, at, at earlier times, there's sort of this uh, non-scientific, pre-scientific discourse uh, that, that surrounds them. Then at a certain point, um, at least in the minds of some, they get pulled into uh, discussions about science. Uh, and I think actually among people sort of the cryptid-slash-Fortian community today, my observation has been that that, that still remains sort of a split, um, there's sort of this side that says, you know, Bigfoot, <laughs> Sasquatch is this interesting animal. Uh, these other folks that say, you know, we're as interested in UFOs as we are in Bigfoot, and Bigfoot is this part of this mythological race that has this mythological origin. So all of that actually informed um, a lot of what I had to say about how uh, monsters have become a way um, in different periods in American history to... To to talk about the nature of science Mm -hmm. and to talk about what counts as science, Um, I I do make the point in the book that discussions actually about the sea serpent in the 19th century um, seem to have played a pretty significant role in the professionalization of science Um, and discussions about the nature of evidence and what counts as evidence and doesn't count as evidence.
0: Presumably these aren't the kinds of monsters that you believe in, the little green men and the sea serpents well
3: you know i mean I, I and i'm actually careful in the book I, I i make clear that you know i'm i'm not a a forty i'm not sort of a poor man's fox molder I, I i i don't believe in the sense that um you know that particular com- that those communities i should say would would assert their belief um i mean i i believe that they are related to the structures of american society and so therefore they're more important than just they, they can't simply be explained away as psychological states or what um, some people occasionally claim that they see. Uh, that's and that's kind of my argument for um, for, for why these narratives, why these creatures. Uh, ought, ought to be taken more seriously.
4: It seems like when I was reading your book, one of the themes that comes up over and over again, not just in your book, but in, in the subject of monsters in general, is the idea of xenophobia. You know, the fear of others, of outsiders, of sure. monsters, things that are sort of beyond ourselves and whatever else. Do you see horror as inherently about, um, you know, us, us, about them, uh, you know, us versus them, a sort of fear of otherness? Uh, do you think that that's, that's inherent in the, in the characteristics of monsters?
3: Um, well, I think I would separate. Um, I think I would separate monster traditions yeah. from horror traditions. I, th- I think that in the monster tradition, that is one inherent strain, and in fact, going all the way back to the Middle Ages, uh, back before Amer- you know um, early American settlement, I think that you can see that uh, monsters as a way to talk about parts of the world and the peoples who live there uh, that are not understood. Uh, I make a big point in the book of, of describing how um, essentially the the first French and Spanish explorers, eventually the English explorers that come to uh, the New World, that they, they come expecting to find monstrous races because their mythology had told them that's what they would find. And so there's almost this sort of, um, there's this cultural preparation that goes on before they encounter native americans and indeed even earlier in the the mid 15th century uh before they encountered africans and so they attribute a lot of the um, a lot of the monstrous characteristics they expected to find to to those peoples
4: uh, so are you saying that it's it's basically a self fulfilling prophecy where if you're if you're expecting to find monsters then then you know you'll you'll find them where you look for them
3: well you know i'm a big i just theoretically, I'm sort of a big believer in, in Karl Popper's argument about those kinds of things that, you know, we, we sort of see what we plan to see. Our theory, mm-hmm. our, our theory guides what we're able to, what we're able to observe. Um, Absolutely. which actually I think goes a long way to essentially explaining why at different moments, you know, to go back to the sea serpent, you see sort of hundreds of people, uh, seeing these kinds of creatures. Um, so, so yeah, I, I would agree with that.
2: I'm also a fan of Popper's delicious stuffed peppers. Have you tried those? They are,
3: really <laughs> yeah. Most people didn't really realize that he had sort of a side, uh, <laughs> a, a side avocation there. But glad yeah, you brought that. Up. That's it. <laughs>
4: Well let me just do a, let me just do a quick follow up on that. I mean do you you know yeah, sure. I, you made an interesting distinction between monsters and, and horror which I think right. obviously monsters are are part of the the context of of horror yeah. and there's horror that, that does not necessarily involve monsters but uh, in this xenophobia, which is inherent, uh, I think in, in monsters, as you point out, and also generally in, in, in horror, I think in many cases. Um, do you see the xenophobia as being cathartic? That is giving release to social anxieties so we don't enact them and, you know, saying, okay, well, because we're dealing with monsters in this literary context or in this film, then we we're sort of, that's our release. Or do you see them as provocational? You know, that, uh, we we're, we're, we're having these monsters in our, in our culture, in our memes, in our literature, and it's inspiring us to go out and, and, and act on that.
3: I, I think that, I actually think that goes back to the, the distinction that I would draw between um, sort of beliefs about monsters and the horror tradition, and sort of monster culture and the horror tradition. In that, um, I, I think that the, the monster tradition, which is in a way sort of larger than, uh, than the horror tradition, uh, includes things like folklore. Also includes things like thinking of thinking of the monster not as something horrifying, but rather as something revelatory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, some back to kind of the original meaning of of the monster as kind of an omen or a portent. Um, very frequently, the monster stories are are simply about the other. And, and, and in one way or the other, in a positive or a negative way. And I think that that tradition does tend to be, um, does tend to be a provocative, a, a sort of encouragement. Um, not, not a catharsis, because I think the catharsis often comes in, um, in the violence that is done to specific groups and specific people, you know, um, being driven by the monster tradition. The horror tradition, on the other hand, is much more complicated. So it, it tends to involve the monster, but it's almost sort of bigger than the monster. The horror tradition is often as sort of subversive and undermining our, uh, particularly in literature and film, undermining our understanding of what the monster means. Um, calling into question uh, whether or not, um, you know, the monsters are us. Or, or whether the monster is, is actually out there. You actually see this a lot in, um, in, the, in the zombie uh, narratives, where the story tends to be, you know, sort of starts out, the monsters are the zombies, the, the real message is that the monsters are us, the things that we do to one another in these kind of post-apocalyptic situations that are imagined. Uh, that's kind of the, the the real horror.
2: That's interesting because it reminds me of the sort of, uh, in the real world, uh, the, the transcendental quality uh, that people report anecdotally when they experience a monstrous or horrific uh, supernatural-type event, mm-hmm. or even a, a Bigfoot sighting, right? Uh, if you listen to people who've had right. Bigfoot sightings, it's almost a religious experience. Like they give testimony... Like like the way people give testimony in the Baptist Church, you know? It's it's yes, absolutely it's, it's very interesting.
3: I think it's an important point because um, you know, of course I, I got really interested in um how in I mean when we think about monsters in the forties and fifties, the nineteen forties and fifties, I mean we tend to think of the movies, I mean the alien invasion narratives, but as you know, as you guys certainly know, I mean that's also kind of ground zero for um, you know, the, the first alleged sightings of flying saucers, um, the kind of contactee, uh, movement, um, and, and, and all of that, <laughs> almost, was being placed in, in highly, highly religious terms. And in fact, you have religious movements, uh, sort of messianic memoirs being produced, um, out of that. Oh, for um, sure. The, like Adamski's, da- Space Brothers, uh, Space Brothers, the exactly. Space Brothers yeah. contacted me to, Spread a message of peace, that kind of thing,
2: and that's still part of it. I mean, I mean, there is a, a sort of uh, sure, in, in the contactee uh, phenomena. The, the uh there's sort of a fearful I don't know what's going on factor. But there's the other side of that, the I would say the non anal penetration side would be the, uh, the, the, the the side that says I was contacted by aliens and they have a message that, that that we need to save the planet and that we're part of a galactic civilization and you know we can we can do this that you know we can we can get o- we can overcome. Never really any instructions, but that sort of message of we can. they're space obamas i don't right (laughs) yeah they they, we can see the human race and put things in your
4: butt
3: yeah they they could do both but usually it's one or the other right (laughs) it it does tend to be one or the other and i actually talk about both there's there's you know as you know there's a there's a section in the book called getting getting probed uh which you know it's a beautiful image uh a thoughtful
2: analysis yes yeah exactly
3: (laughs) um and, uh, and and yeah, I examined that um, in, in relation, in, in a sense, to you know, um, it, it's very fascinating that you have these kind of public discussions about sex with aliens, sort of right on the verge of the uh, the sexual revolution, um, and and people beginning to feel like they can talk about things in this um, you know this this contactee literature. That it's it's almost like you know it's it's off the cultural radar in in, in any other uh, sort of context. Um, so so yeah, that's that's definitely definitely part of it too. But um, but and, and you know in, in terms of religion and 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 sort of the, the flying saucer phenomenon, what one of the things that interests me is that that even evangelical religion gets in on the act. Um, I quote Billy Graham actually in in the book. Um, his own interest in flying saucers and his effort to kind of take those narratives and put them, put, p- place them in an evangelical narrative. Say that you know they're angels, uh, they're evidence of spiritual warfare. People really are seeing these things, um, and these are signs of of the last days and and that kind of thing. So I actually think it's kind of more evidence of this kind of monster as 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 meaning. Machine, you know, it's it's hard to pin them down because they're producing so many different meanings for for so many different uh, types of people.
2: Well, it's time to put on the Barry White and earn our PG-13 for this episode. Let's talk about sex.
3: Okay. Let's talk about (laughs) sex. This is a book that's slam full of sex, right? Uh, Right. I mean, I don't really think you can talk monsters without talking
2: sex. Right. So you go back to one of my favorite, which is the uh, colonial witches, and uh, then you move on to uh, sort of the the racist, monstrous pontifications about sex practices in Africa, satanic cults, alien abductions. So everybody seems to think that monsters are getting the best, most interesting, in vigorous sexual encounters, why do you think that is? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: you, you've you've asked me a question I've never been asked before. Uh, Yay! So that's, really uh,
4: <laughs> that's what we do. Welcome to Monster Talk.
3: <laughs> this is sort of the this is sort of the why are monsters good in bed portion of the the program, I guess. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think that in part, um, because, and I think this goes back to our discussion about the monster tradition, um, one of, uh, one of the ways that monsters have been identified, uh, e- even in, in non-American contexts, is as, as creatures of, of excess. Uh, creatures that are literally too much in some way. Uh, too big, creature with a thousand eyes, uh appetites are uh, are extreme. Uh and so you know I I think it's very easy to see how monster folklore given that that monster folklore uh could get could get hardwired with uh with sexual folklore. And and that's actually a lot of of, of what's dealt with. I talk about in the book, you know, for the early settlers um in, in America, particularly those who are first engaging in the slave trade. Uh, the sort of sexual folklore about Africa, uh, and African men, uh, and this, this racist, um, uh, equation that is drawn between African men and monstrous apes, uh, which unfortunately in the American monster tradition is an idea that, you know, c- continues to pop up. I mean, you know, popped up in the 20th century in many ways. Um, in, it, it was a way to talk about uh, an, an extreme kind of experience. I do wonder if at some cultural moments, uh, particularly more repressive cultural moments, it's sort of like um, the, 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 the literature and the folklore and the fictions of the fantastic are kind of the arena where it's okay to talk about those kinds of things. Uh, and so I think that that actually may account, as I alluded to before, to this kind of, you know, the, the sexual experiences of, of contactees uh, in uh, in the 50s and, and in the 60s. Uh, and then, of course, you know, more recently, I mean, vampires are obviously all about sex. I mean, they really can't be understood, uh, despite what Stephanie Meyer said, they really can't be understood without uh, without that kind of, that, that context.
2: Sorry, I was say, who, who said the famous zipperless fuck? I, I can't remember. Uh, anyway, I'll look
4: it up later. It's an Erica Jong, I think. Yeah.
0: You talk about uh, sexy monsters as well, and and what were you referring to by that by that term?
3: Um, well, both um, our tendency to um, have a attraction uh, and and a, a kind of simultaneously repulsion um, to the monster, which I think is a cultural phenomenon that I, I would argue is especially strong in the United States. Uh, the reason being that, um, you know, America has uh, this ideology I talk about in the book, this idea of, of uh, American exceptionalism, uh, this notion of uh, American innocence, uh, American purity. And uh, I think that monsters have frequently functioned as this dark place that we go, uh, where we test the waters in terms of, um, you know, what, what does innocence endangered look like? Um, what about, uh, particular historical moments when people are especially worried about what that looks like? And one example that I would give, I think, a kind of a preeminent sexy monster in, in American history is, uh, Bela Lugosi's Dracula. And, uh, it's a little hard to understand today, I, uh, I, I guess that, you know, Bela Lugosi, um, you know, uh, opera outfit, whole nine yards. Well, he was a real live sex symbol in the 1930s, um, briefly married to Clara Bow, the, the it girl, Clara Bow. Um, you know, just was causing fumes and flutters, um, you know, all among the, 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 the female and, and certainly part of the male population as well during that period. This is the same period where there's an awful lot of anxiety about immigrants, Particularly Eastern European immigrants. Um, there's a completely irrational urban legend slash moral panic going on about, uh, well, it's the white slavery panic. It's, it's referred to this fear that, like, innocent young girls from, you know, from the Midwest are going to places like Chicago and, oh my God, they're meeting up with these, these, these Slavs and these Jews and, and they're turning them into prostitutes. They're seducing them and turning them into prostitutes and yet, you know, 1931 America's most popular monster is essentially an Eastern European immigrant who uses the powers of seduction in in an obviously sexual kind of way.
2: Wait, are you talking about the the, the dangers of white slavery? Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm I'm
3: horrible. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, you know I, I I think that we we tend to have um, j- just as a culture I mean I, the the how individuals you know react to this is a different question, but as a culture, there's kind of this attraction and repulsion to mm-hmm. the idea of the monstrous, an erotic uh, uh, attraction and, and and repulsion.
1: This is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently.
3: and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinWagPod and
2: WagOn.
4: Well, let me ask about so you. You talk about the moral panics and stuff. What do you What do you think about the uh, the moral panics surrounding uh, not only horror films but also the the efforts to censor horror film and literature? Um, what, what's your take on that?
3: Well, you know, I I think that that's a, that's fascinating in part um, because uh, horror films really do tend to be our Cultural nightmares. I mean, that's how Wes Craven has, has essentially described them, somebody who obviously knows an awful lot about nightmares. And he, you know, I, I think he's right about that in the sense that, um, that they, they do become a way to dialogue about, uh, sort of dialogue in public about the issues like violence, vi- the relationship between violence and gender and sexuality. Um, the the places where our sort of our, our our personal and and cultural boundaries are, and my um, my experience just in in studying about moral panics of of all kinds, because um, I, I, I've sort of I looked very closely with this in, in an earlier book about uh, sort of the concept of of Satan in America, and and, and my experience has been um, that most of those most of those forces groups. Uh, lobby groups of different kinds that want to censor and, and push that kind of stuff away. Um, I mean, they're, they're less concerned about the monsters. I think they're even less concerned about the gore and the blood. Um, they may even be less concerned about the, the, the nudity and the sexuality than they are just these questions, these bigger questions being Asked in public and being represented represented in public, I think horror movies in particular just really tend to be very subversive. They tend to have subversive political messages uh, in one way or another, and I think that that that's often what's behind this. Ick! I can't believe we've got you know horror movies showing in our com, in our community. I, I've actually. Um, Quick personal story: I've actually come across this in um, in reactions to my book. Um, when I was doing the uh, kind of the regional uh, part of the book tour last year, when the book first came out, there was actually a, a a tiny bookstore in a tiny southern town who, because the bookstore was so small, they had to have kind of a a partnership with the local public library in order to bring me in. Uh, just because they didn't actually have any space to put people I mean there's this little hole in the wall bookstore and uh so so that was all set and and about a week before um, I was supposed to that that was sort of going to be one of my my upcoming stops um the the public library uh, this small southern town pulled out, and the reason that they gave was that and and i quote um the the book is filled with bad language uh, <laughs> which is interesting, <laughs> and, and ideas that we would rather not have to deal with.
4: Wow. Uh, Suddenly so, so we're in the 1700s. What the hell?
3: Yeah, right. Yeah, and and which I took to mean ideas that we'd rather not have discussed and, and then have patrons say, you know, I can't believe that, you know, you brought this person in and, and, and that this was talked about. So, you know, I— I, I don't think you know. I don't think because the word "fuck" is in the book a couple of times that was the reason. I, I think it was more sort of the the second part of, of of that concern. Like, let's not talk about race. Let's not talk about hmm. gender. Let's talk about. Let's let's uh, let's uh,
2: thank thank the South for keeping the
3: sin and censorship
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
3: And I, uh, you know, I, I think that you'd conceivably happen in, 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 in other parts of the country as, as, as well. I mean, that, that may be more of a rural, urban, uh, kind of thing. Oh, but, yeah, um, yeah. I mean,
2: every, you know. every state has a south,
3: right? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, the, the, the Pennsylvania phenomenon. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. No, I, I, I just as another aside, I, I drove through Pennsylvania one time. It was we stopped a couple places very rural, and it's like, really? Wow. These people are just like a lot of where I grew up in Georgia. So that's kind of funny because I usually think of yeah. Pennsylvania as being a very urban, uh, sure. sort of place, and it's not. I mean, it's just all over the well, place. America's, South Ohio, you know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you talked about the movie Freaks being controversial. Yet at the same time yeah. the film was was suffering um, uh, for, from that sort of issue in the box office. The, right. the freak freak shows in in the right. ten and one were still a popular part of American culture. And right. I know that I read uh, the Monster Show by uh, David Skull, and he talked about that as well. Oh
3: yeah, yeah, great book.
2: Yeah, yeah, really, yeah, it's very enjoyable. So, but what's your take on uh, on that sort of uh, dichotomy between uh, the American public? wanting to see real freaks, yet rejecting uh, the film.
3: Yeah, um, and, you know, that's actually sort of where I I, I begin the book and in, in sort of thinking about uh, cultural reactions to, to the monster. And and I think it, it does go back to this kind of subversive element that often shows up in, in the horror tradition. I think it may even illustrate kind of what I was trying to say earlier about differences between the monster tradition and the horror tradition in that. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, I think that to go to a, a, a freak show, as as millions and millions of Americans still were in the early 30s and, and had been uh, really since the 1840s and 50s, um, was to see uh, the monster, quote-unquote, as an object, um, to view them, to see these people, to either laugh, um, be horrified, uh, be fascinated, uh, be repulsed, um, confirm one's own sense of normalcy, which uh, has often been a big part of what the um, of what the freak show is all about. There's actually a whole uh, discussion about the popularity of freak shows in immigrant communities, um, because uh, in immigrant communities you you have groups of people who are themselves being treated as outsiders. Um, but here. They get the opportunity to to attend the spectacle where they can sort of see these real outsiders uh, and sort of say, okay, well, I'm actually pretty normal uh, in comparison, you know, to the alligator man and uh, the world's smallest woman and that kind of thing. So... um, why, then, uh, are people repulsed in the sense of they don't even want to see it? They walk out of the theater. Um, you know, uh, MGM has to essentially sell the film away within a year or two with, with the movie Freaks. And I, I think that's because Freaks subverted that whole tradition of let's objectify the strange and the abnormal. Um, it's the normals who are the bad guys, who are the villains and Freaks. Um, the Freaks themselves, despite sort of the extreme behavior and even kind of this murder uh, at the end, um, they are presented as uh, the people, and that's important, the people who have our sympathy. Um, and they they look at us, and that's actually a significant part of that film. They the film itself, even the way that Todd Browning, who also did Dracula, by the way, even the way that it is shot, um, they often look at the camera and thus look at uh look at the audience. And I, I you know, I mentioned in the book that I, I read a number of memoirs of um of people who had been involved in the sideshow tradition, and uh one of the themes that kinda kept popping up is that they would say, you know, um, sometimes, uh, although I was often discouraged from doing this, uh, by the owner of, of, of the circus or the carnival, uh, I would make a point with certain audiences to make eye contact with them, to force them to recognize that I'm looking at them as, as much, if not more than they are looking at me. And, and they often, re- you know, write about how, you know, uh, just delighted at sort of how uncomfortable uh they are and 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 often will kind of go away. So um it was uh I I you know I like that film uh in part because I do think it's one of these these the horror tradition films that subvert our understanding of what normality is and and what the monster is and and where we draw these kinds of boundaries.
2: I think it's a kind of a pity that Browning didn't get to see any of the uh
3: Acceptance that came later. Oh gosh, uh, I know.
2: Yeah. So. I mean, yeah, I mean, because
3: you it, know, he died like literally right before that film was kind of reborn on the art house circuit, and. Yeah, it makes me Diane wonder Diane Arbus if, got interested, and yeah.
2: Right, I, I've been curious about that. Is that is that a product of he died and people went back to review his oeuvre, or is it? Uh, that it was just a coincidence and he just missed it you know what i mean it's a it's an interesting question
3: yeah it you know it seems like it's a little bit of both i mean i um uh 60s counterculture and sort of fascination with you know the bizarre and the different had had something to to do with it i think um i mean the film had actually been being shown i mean after 19 1932 it um just kind of went underground i mean it was showing in in kind of the well, not grindhouse theaters, but kind of the precursor of, of grindhouse theaters. Um, the, the kind of theaters that, that, that showed health movies, quote unquote, in, <laughs> yeah. in the 1940s. I, I, um, volleyball is better naked. I, I, I think we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, although, you know, during that period, the movie was also changed in, in some ways. Some of the title, there were uh, new title cards put in that actually changed its message a little bit that um, you know used terms like um, you know m- malformed creations uh misfits of nature capital n <laughs> uh that that kind of thing uh so that it, it's almost like even sort of the underground film crowd was 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 a little uncomfortable with brown's original vision
2: I mean I we could probably talk for a full hour about freaks. I I that's a great I mean the the fact that the uh the so-called misfits also were an interracial group. They they uh right. they they had uh, everybody seemed to be treated equally, right? And right.
3: and, and sort of this alternative community.
2: Yeah, it really is and, and and it probably mirrors to some extent I guess the actual sort of community those people lived in in and, and uh I, and, and I love the performances of Johnny Eck, and I can't remember the name of the human worm. But uh, they just – I mean, those guys were so talented anyway, right? Absolutely. And, and then they got to show that on film for people who might never see them except in the context of the freak show. Anyway, I love right. the film. Anyway, so I'll put a link to that in our show notes too so if people people want to find it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And people ought to read as much as they can about the Hilton sisters too. Uh, not to be confused with the more recent Hilton sisters, but, um, the, uh, uh the, the conjoined twins who are such a famous part of, uh, uh of freaks. Uh, they had a long career before and after the film. And speaking of kind of a sexual fascination with the monstrosity, that, that seems to have been a big part of their appeal in, in depression era America because there's a lot of discussion about the number of boyfriends that they had, that they were married. At a couple of different times, um, so you know, imagination's running wild. I guess is the is the point.
4: But what's your uh, what's the what's your take on the appeal or social effects of uh, films that like the Saw series, of the Human Centipede, or, or the the uh, the final the second sequence, uh, the, the torture mm-hmm. porn um, genre that's that's uh, emerged in the last decade or so? Uh, what's your mm-hmm. what's your take? I mean, obviously, there's always been visceral. You know, nasty horror films going back to you right. know, Cannibal Holocaust, and the Last House on the Left, and things sure. like that. But it seems like sure. in in the in the past, you know, five, six, uh, eight years or so, there's been a, a real development of that whole that whole really particularly particularly violent, gory, often sexual um, uh, genre. And and of course, there's been concern about you know, it's 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 yet, yet another you know. America's going to hell in a handbasket. Did you see Saw Four? <laughs> right. Um, uh, do you do you think there's any validity to that? What's your What's your take on the emergence of that as as a subgenre of of, uh, of the horror?
3: Well, uh, part of what's interesting about those kinds of films to me, uh, Saw, um, Hostile, but then um, also uh, the, these more extreme kinds of things, like uh, not just the, the the two human centipede films, but um, also this. Um, uh, it's called a Serbian film. Um, you know, they they really um, the, the the effect is obviously, uh, or, or the effort is obviously to create as much shock, distaste, disgust, literal nausea, uh, as as possible. Um, it, I'm glad that you pointed out that these films have always been around in, in a certain sense. I mentioned the, the grindhouse circuit and, um, you know, there was, um, there was a, essentially a rape torture genre, uh, during the 1950s and 60s that played in those theaters. They actually called them the ruffies, um, which essentially just featured rough sex. Um, um, almost all of it directed against women. Um, what I think is uh, what I think is different is obviously a. Uh, this has become much more mainstream. I mean, Hostile was was very much a mainstream film. Um, it's also been. I mean, I guess this has been true of the. Um, uh, you mentioned Cannibal Holocaust, and 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 you know you could also think about some of the Fulci uh, films, the uh, the Italian zombie films that. Right. just were, you know, gore just, you know, everywhere. The, you know, Unbelievable. And and you know, I, I would just note that um films like Hostel and Saw pull uh these stories, Human Centipede Two, completely out of any kind of um any kind of supernatural context. Um they make um they make uh the torture and the horror um Parts of the secret underground worlds, these almost kind of institutional worlds of terror. I mean, that certainly is what's going on in Hostel. There's kind of this secret network um, uh, of people. And to a lesser degree, you could see Saw in that way, too, just because, I mean, it's not, you know, the ripper in the night with a knife. I mean, it's a much more mm-hmm. complex. Uh, kind of arrangement in terms of you know ways to cause people to to suffer, um, and so you know what I would say about that is you know I think it's 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 almost kind of this changing sense of the impersonality of evil. Uh, I do think that it's a discourse about evil in the age of um, increased fears of terrorism and ethical questions about how to respond to that. I mean, lots of people have said, "Hey, you know." And, and I've said it a million times that, you know, hey, it's, it, we should pay attention to the fact that films like this are becoming popular, you know, right at the moment that we're having a, a national discourse about the ethics of, of torture. And, and that's one side of it. The other side of it though, especially if you think about hostile, is that, you know, you have this kind of system of evil, this evil, evil network. Uh, and uh, not only do the characters attempt and largely successfully you know, escape from it, they also strike back against it. I mean, there's kind of this vengeance narrative uh, going on, um, mm-hmm. torture going on sort of from both sides. Those being tortured have to become savage, have to become something other than what they are. Uh, in order to be able to, uh, in order to be able to, to deal with this and, and respond to this.
4: Again, that, that's of course nothing new. I mean, you, you look back at some of the early films like, you know, I Spit on Your Grave, um, Texas Chainsaw or The Hills Have Eyes. You have these where, you particularly with the I Spit on Your Grave, you have this, this, obviously this, this, um, this reversal, you know, where you have the, the, the abusers being abused in the end and this whole revenge fantasy. But for example, with right. the Hills Have Eyes, again, this is not just one psycho murder, or whatever else. This is a, this right. is an underground, hidden, sort of, cultural society, uh, you know, group of people who are, who are doing these things. And so, but it, it's interesting what you're talking about, the, um, the, the, the discussion regarding uh, torture porn, uh, following 9-11 mm. because, uh, I actually wrote something about that and was interesting. Mm. It was interesting seeing that where, uh, you know, immediately after the 9-11 attacks, there were this discussion of how society is becoming more civilized and everyone's being nicer to each other. And oh my God, you know, we'll never have comedy again. And there will never be a, another <laughs> horror film made right. because Americans are saturated with horror and we all want peace and happiness and Doris Day films. Right. And of course that yeah. lasted approximately three weeks. Um, and then <laughs> and then almost immediately you you had the these sorts of films coming out
3: right no yeah that's that's absolutely true um and uh, you know and and thinking about hills have eyes and 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 um and others i I would also you know throw in last house on the left um yes. with that too. I think that fits in with that. Part of this may be something also that's just kind of hardwired into um the way Americans have thought about horror since since the frontier period because. You know, you could make the argument that these are new um, these are new captivity narratives. Um, the captivity narratives your um, your your audience may, may know was this really popular literary genre uh, going back to the Puritan period. that was essentially all about um, savage Indians, quote unquote. Um, you know, taking often Puritan women captive, always with the suggestion that there were you know weird kinds of torture and strange kinds of sexual things going on and then and then often ending with you know the quote unquote redemption of the captive uh that sometimes involved um her simply getting away from from her persecutors sometimes involved you know Puritan men showing up with their blunderbusses and and you know just wiping out the, the the whole indian village and so you know um it, that some of these films probably have something to do with uh, america's hi- historical consciousness of the frontier and lines between savagery and civilization, and 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 those kinds of issues, which are, you know, uh, pretty I think pretty deeply embedded in in cultural memory.
0: So you've been talking a lot about changing attitudes and fears, but at the same time, how a lot of things tend to stay the same. So, I'm wondering how have American monsters changed over time? Did the same things scare people today that scared them 100 or 200 years ago?
3: You know, they don't. And um, I, I I actually uh, I actually. Started thinking about this project in part um, because, uh, you know, as much as I love the Universal Studios monster tradition, Frankenstein, the Bride, the Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, etc., etc., uh, you know, uh, people just don't find that scary anymore. <laughs> There's, you know, nobody, essentially, uh, after the age of three that finds the Universal Studios monster tradition particularly frightening. People in the nineteen thirties, they did. Uh I mean it it was scary. And and one answer to that, one explanation for that has always been, well, you know, people times were simpler uh back then and, you know, maybe they just weren't as sophisticated. you know, times back then were as complicated as they get. I mean, times back then were uh, was the Great Depression and um the uh, lynching in America and the rise of fascism overseas. And so, you know, it's, it, it's not that, that, you know, they were somehow sort of more innocent. So, you but know, I started sort of asking myself, well, well, you know, is it maybe something about what we're dealing with, what American culture is dealing with in particular kinds of eras that makes these things uh, especially frightening? Uh, and so to use my example from, from you know, Universal Studios, I mean, we have already talked about how Dracula may have, uh, kind of fed into to some of that and and gotten connected to other kinds of cultural narratives. But Frankenstein as well, I mean, this is a period where American attitude tw- uh, attitudes towards science and and race is changing. Uh, I talk about in the book kind of the tradition of 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 racist science, which often included notions about criminal brains, uh, fiends that could not help themselves. Uh, the idea that African American men were particularly dangerous for that reason because they were sort of hardwired toward violence. Uh, and, and here you have a, a, a in Frankenstein, here, here you've got a, a monster that who, whose brain is criminal, um, and who, uh, is a product of, of, of science and, and, and also sort of unable to control, um, his, his violence, which, um which now, you know, I mean, one of the things I've thought about that as well is that, you know, now we tend to to look at the Frankenstein story and, and we have a lot of sympathy for the monster. And we talk about the angry villagers with, you know, with their torches. Uh That's the group we're not sympathetic to. I, I don't think that was the case uh, in the 1930s, uh, whatever the intention of the filmmakers. Uh I think that most audiences saw this fiendish violent monster and it reminded them of experiences in their own communities where people like that had had to be destroyed. I I had kind of this moment of, um, I guess it was a moment of illumination, kind of a dark illumination, I guess, that in uh, 1933, audiences that would have been watching Frankenstein, and particularly watching um, the angry mob uh, chasing Frankenstein to the windmill, uh, I mean, that's showing in theaters all over America. It's showing in theaters in the South and in the Midwest. And so it's very likely that, you know, there would have been people sitting in the audience in, in that film who at some point had taken part in, in, in a lynch mob. Uh, who, who had actually performed the kinds of actions that's being shown on the screen being done to the monster. So, you know, what, hmm. where's their sympathy in, in looking at that narrative? I'd never read contemporary reviews. What do you think? Do you think think they had the – I've been there. I've done that. Well, you know, we don't have any Americans saying it. We've got some some foreign reviewers saying it. Um, I actually – I believe I I quoted – it may just be in a footnote, but from a a British review of uh, Frankenstein uh, where he says, you know, um, this will remind American audiences of nothing so much as a Georgia lynching. And 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 I'm sure it did, but you know, the even though you know between about 1890 and about 1947, you've got 5,000 African American men lynched in in uh, in the South and in other parts of the United States. You know, it remained kind of this great unspoken underground um, world, uh, despite the fact that you had people from all classes of society who who were involved in them.
4: If I can, I'd like to just go back for a second to to the the, uh, the social consequences of horror films because I've always found that to be a fascinating, sure, absolutely <laughs> fascinating subject. Um, what do you think about the concern that horror films inspire copycat copycat crimes and influence the public? Um, as as I'm sure you know, there's been many films that have been banned, uh, particularly in, in Britain. Uh, even uh, as right. I recall, Clockwork Orange was banned for for many years, uh, even though not strictly a horror film, certainly a violent film. What's your what's your take on that?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, of course, you're referring to. Um, I believe they call it the video nasty controversy. In uh, yes, in the infamous
4: video uh, nasties. Yes.
3: Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and Clockwork was a was a part of that. Um, I mean, I, I I don't see an essential connection uh, between uh, anything that 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 we read, watch, uh, take in, and, and our uh, behavior. Um, I, I wrote about this more really in *Satan in America* than in, than in *Monsters*. But um, you know, my general sense is that um, that, that the, the desire to, to, to censor those kinds of images—it's um, it, not just a simplistic in, in, interpretation of the relationship between behavior and, and texts. It, it's, it's actually a, a kind of a, a way to ignore and to sublimate. Uh, what's really going on? Um, so, for example, in uh, the 1980s, uh, you have all of this concern about everything from um, heavy metal music to role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons to horror films um, to these urban legends uh, um, that were part of the Satanic Panic. Children are being picked up, abused, um, ritually abused by these these underground satanic groups. Um, and, you know, it's the very same era that America's inner cities are being absolutely ravaged by the crack academic, epidemic when, um, you know, you have, uh, um, a war on drugs that, uh, is, is actually completely ignoring sort of the street level effects of this. Uh, when you do actually have millions of children in those communities and elsewhere who are suffering from Malnutrition and, and all kinds of actual sorts of problems. So, I think it's, a, um, I think it's a kind of way to create a moral rhetoric that, um, that, that ignores difficult choices. Uh, I mean, you know, it's really in, in a, any given community, it's relatively easy to censor a film. Um, but to deal with more complex social problems, uh, that's going to take a little bit more than you know getting a petition up and riling up the parent teacher association and and that kind of thing so uh, i I think it's often uh i mean i'm sort of a i guess it's always bad when you attribute bad motives to to <laughs> to people you disagree with, but right. it 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 is a kind of uh, of subterfuge i think uh, of dealing with real actual issues.
4: Right. And it's it's sort of, as you mentioned, it's sort of simplistic solutions. Like, well, the the problem to to violent crime in society is not to ban the Saw films. I mean, it's just, there's just no, there's just no connection there. And yet, you know, many people sort of, that's one of the first things they go to because it's an easy target, I think.
3: Right. And and you sometimes also hear the language of, well, um, this is a part of, um, this is a part of the coarsening of culture culture becoming more crude and uh yeah you know i think that's that's problematic because there have always been you know quote unquote crude and coarse and vulgar (laughs) parts of of societal experience and Mm -hmm. uh film comes a way to explore that
2: yeah even our birds are angry in american culture
3: yeah exactly
2: right (laughs) so uh so how do you think um anti-monster agencies in american culture uh fared in the marketplace of the monster like like the church or, or science or military the sort of things you might think would be the solution
3: yeah i i don't know that their solution i are I, solutions i think that um they are in some cases institutions that that need monsters um of one kind or another uh and I think also that, you know, if you sort of trace the history of, of science in, in America and, and scientific institutions, uh, the, the, the monster has actually been very important. Um, I alluded to this in our discussion about the, the sea serpent. But, you know, in the early 19th century, you've got major scientific organizations in in the young United States um, who really bet their reputations on the existence of of these creatures. Um, in one ca- in one case the um, the New England uh Linnaean Society in the eighteen twenties claiming that um, claiming that essentially they have uh the spawn of a sea serpent. They have a baby sea serpent, um, or or at least its skin. Um, and then, uh, Louis Agassiz comes along and says, well, you know, actually this is a, this is a a fairly common New England water snake that has a, a skin condition of some kind. Uh, that's why it has this weird, these weird bumps. And so, you know, that particular scientific association collapses, it's gone. I mean, it never, it never recovers from that. And that's actually an important moment because it's a moment when, um, well, when people like Charles Lyell, the, the, the geologist who himself believed in sea serpents for a while, um, started saying, you know, maybe eyewitness accounts don't really, maybe that's not what we mean by empirical evidence. Uh, maybe empirical evidence is having something in a lab, you know, as opposed to someone who says they saw it. Uh, so, I, so, you know, I would say monsters have been sort of very important for, um, uh, uh, for science as, as well. Well,
0: Scott, a final question. We always like to ask our guests to uh, tell us about their favorite monster. So what's your favorite monster?
3: Oh, um, absolutely, uh, the Bride of Frankenstein. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, uh, she's sort of this Art Deco masterpiece, for one thing. I mean, just the look with the hair and everything, that's, that's amazing. I mean, that's just sort of an amazing accomplishment of design. But uh she's also, um, you know, she's also kind of America's first, uh, well, not first, but she, she's one of America's more important um, subversive monsters. Uh, it's very interesting that she's a, a female monster, and she's a female monster that refuses the designs of her creator. Her creator sort of made her to be a helpmate um, to, you know, her male counterpart, and uh, which, you know sounds familiar, um, but she essentially says no. Uh, in fact, she sort of screams no. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I love the, the Bride of Frankenstein. I, I think she's pretty pretty cool. I'm, I'm actually wearing my Bride of Frankenstein t-shirt right now.
4: <laughs> <laughs> All right.
3: Is it, did you watch Gods and Monsters, I assume? Uh, I love Gods and Monsters. Uh, I actually love the novel uh as well uh Christopher Bram's uh novel and um uh, I'm actually pretty excited. I'm 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 actually supposed to meet Christopher Bram in a few days, the the novelist Pine that And here in a couple of months we're we're gonna be on a, a panel together talking about gods and monsters, um talking about sexuality and horror narratives and that kind of thing. So so yeah that's a that's a very cool movie about uh about the life of James Whale and interesting period in Hollywood too
2: it it was and it, it, he's a fascinating character himself um and i also thought that the uh, the film it explores that really interesting idea of the sort of uh, uh generative energy but uh without the female right so, so right. I, yeah,
3: it, absolutely. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. That, that, right, yeah they're making which is the big wife. part of that film. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But at the same time that they're making the woman, she's really only existing as a, a companion to the monster, not in any way, uh, as a, uh, a mate who's going to be able to make new monsters. All the creation, all the generative processes is, is held by men there. It's very, very, right. very complicated. Ideas in that
3: film It is yeah uh, it, it, it absolutely is and uh, you, you know another thing I, I actually like about the the book and the film a lot. The book does this even more than the film and there's a lot in the film is that um, showing the connections between the experience of war and, and the experience of horror. Which, uh, that's, that's kind of David Skull's uh, influence. I mean, that's a, a pretty important idea, uh, for him. And, and the, you know, the film does make a lot of the fact that, you know, of course, James is the World War I veteran, uh, saw a friend, a, a friend, and in, in fact, his first lover die in the war. And then that moment, you know, where he sort of holds up the, um, the gas mask, uh, in this kind of totemistic, you know, sort of, sort of way uh it's kind of, you know, war as inspiration for for horror narratives, which is a pretty important idea. David Skall is actually briefly in that movie. I did not know that. Oh yeah, yeah. He he he's in it very briefly at the beginning. Um he actually is um part of a film crew. Um and and I believe he I believe he actually says action or something like that, just with the, the film start. So that's just pretty pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that, that's a cool bit of trivia. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today for this interview.
0: Yeah, thank you very thank much. Thank
3: you. I mean, the questions have been great.
2: Monster Talk. Thanks again for listening to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford and Karen Stolzno, we interviewed Scott Poole about his new book, Monsters in America. A link to his book and other related materials are in the show notes. Thanks again to everyone who's contributed to our transcript project. That's coming along well. Your contributions, even little ones, are helping turn Monster Talk into a more easily locatable resource on the web. I'm working with our webmaster to put together a tribute page to all the listeners who've helped us. And remember, as we talked about at the top of the show, you can help us just by giving us a review on iTunes. It only takes a moment, and this is a great week to try that. Special thanks this week to Jonathan Ping, David Rodriguez, Hilton Cockcroft, and Ronald Noblock. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. I'm pretty sure every time you read Skeptic, an angel gets its wings. Eh, or something like that. At any rate, the ideas presented in Monster Talk are not necessarily the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys.
0: Sorry, you were cutting out there for me. I wasn't sure if you'd finished speaking or not.
3: (laughs) Oh, uh, yeah, I was all done. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, when I run out of things to say, I say something about cultural memory.
1: 18 plus.